All right, Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, or the whole theme of the book of Revelation is that the king is coming, you know? And, and we're not, we haven't seen this so much yet, but we see glimpses of it, but we really get to see this idea when we get to chapter four that you know, Jesus is taking back that which is already rightfully his. Um, he has snatched the keys of death and hell. He's defeated our foe. He is you know, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. And Revelation is him slowly moving in on that which is rightfully his. And uh, we'll get to that in more detail when we get to chapter four. But right now we're in the second section of the book of Revelation. The first section, you know, Jesus told John, write the things that you have already seen, chapter one, his vision of Jesus. Write the things that are now going on, section two, the things of the church, you know, the seven messages or seven letters that Jesus has for these seven churches. And then the third part begins in chapter four, the things that are after the things of the church, the, after these things. And uh, we'll get into that in, I don't know, 2035, so, but... This morning, we're going to look at the message to the church in Pergamos in chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. Now, I often hear people say, well, if God is, is really love, then he'll do X, Y, and Z. Or if God was good, you know, he would fix problem X, Y, and Z. And I'm sure you've heard that too. But what that actually means is, well, if I were God, this is what I'd do. <laughs> uh, and, and so that, those statements become less of an indictment against God and really more of a revelation of what's important to me if I make that statement, what's most important to me. And, and certainly, you know, I'm not God and you're not God. No, one, no other created being is God. And therefore, we don't always have a right view on what's most important. But that does leave us with a question. What is most important to Jesus, right? What's the most important thing to him or what is important to him? Well, the Bible gives us that answer. You know, we saw already in, in Jesus' message to the church at Ephesus that love was important to him, right? You know, where we love him and where we love one another and he won't, it's not gonna be in a church where there's no love. Well, as we study Jesus' message to Pergamos this morning, we're gonna see that solid teaching is also very important to Jesus. So chapter two, verse 12 it says, and to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, these things says he which has the sharp sword with two edges. I know your works and where you dwell, even where Satan's seat is. And you hold fast my name and have not denied my faith, even in those days where an Antipas was my faithful martyr who was slain among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. Because you have there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. So have you also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come unto you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. And to him that overcomes, I will, give, will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knows, saving he that receives it. So we start here in verse 12, where it says, to the angel, to the leader at the church in Pergamos, write, these things says he which has the sharp sword with two edges. So again, Jesus' messages, they all follow a pattern. He starts off with a greeting uh, that uh, reminds them of his character or an attribute that he has. Uh, usually it refers back to something John saw uh, in his vision of Jesus. 
Then he will commend them if they are doing things right. He will commend them for what they're doing right. Then he will correct them for what they're doing wrong, if they're doing anything wrong. Um, And then he will give them at the end a promise uh, to those who will overcome. So we start here with his reminder of his character, and yet before that, we probably should look at the city of Pergamos, where the church was located at. If we could put that map up there, you'll see that Pergamos was the top most western city of these seven churches that Jesus wanted John to send this letter to. Uh, And Pergamos, it it was situated about 20 miles inland on a thousand foot high hill. Um, It was the center of an independent kingdom in the third century BC, the kingdom of Pergamos. Uh, Its library was second only to the one in Alexandria, having over 200,000 volumes. It was one of the most beautiful Greek cities, uh, uh, Pliny called it the, the jewel of the province of Asia. It had public buildings constructed on the terraces of the steep mountain, and then it had the palace on top of the Acropolis. Now, in 133 BC, their last king bequeathed his kingdom to the Romans in his will and became part of the empire. So Pergamos is you know, very much a Roman city, um, and, and with all the temptations that a Roman city would bring to the Christians who lived there. Jesus, he reminds them, he says, these things says he which has the sharp sword with two edges. Literally, he says, these things says he who has the sword, the one with two edges, the really sharp one. (laughs) He reminds them, the one that you saw, the one that was flying out of my mouth, you know. In chapter one, we saw this brutalizing weapon. Remember, this sword, it's not the ungod weapon, you know. It's the the takes out a bunch of people weapon, you know. Uh, it could be thrown. It's, it's a brutalizing weapon. And we saw it in chapter one, exiting Jesus' mouth to bring judgment. Now, that judgment is for rebels. It's not for believers. It's not for his people. And, and, and so given the revival of emperor worship in the region that we've already talked about, the, the Christians were very likely struggling in this city. We, we learn about someone being killed already for their faith. Uh, so they were probably struggling, you know. And they needed to know that God would right every wrong, that things wouldn't continue this way forever. And you know, we need to know that too because sometimes things look very unjust here, very much like, God, if, are you going to do anything? But when we feel that way, we must never forget that fairness and justice aren't measured only by what happens here, right? They aren't measured that way. You know, one of my favorite characters in the Bible is a guy named Asaph. And you don't really see much about him in the, like the narratives, but you get to learn about him in the, in the, the Psalms. Asaph was one of David's three worship leaders. He had three guys that kind of rotated. And, uh, and Asaph, he, he was kind of, I relate to him a little bit because his heart was always on his sleeve, you know? You never had to wonder how Asaph was feeling because either you could see it on his face or he'd tell you how he was feeling. And, and his songs are very, very uh, bearing of his heart. And, and in one of the songs he wrote, Psalm 73, he talks about how he almost walked away from the Lord because he was so discouraged by the injustice he saw around him. And in Psalm 73, he starts off the song by giving us the truth, uh, where he says, surely God is good to Israel. In uh, Psalm 73, verse 1, he says, truly God is good to Israel, even to such as are of a clean heart. He says, no, 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 I want to start off with the truth here before I tell you my story, you know. God is good to Israel all the time. And, you know, and, and, and even to such as are of a clean heart, you know, you'll be able to see it if you have a right perspective, right? But he says, me, I'm not good all the time. I almost blew it. He says, as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped. 
I almost walked away from the Lord because I was envious of the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I saw how, you know, the wicked does whatever he wants, doesn't care what God thinks, and he's, life's good. And I see the person who follows the Lord, obeys the Lord, and he struggles all the way to his grave. And he said, I struggled with that. He said in verse 13 of Psalm 73, he told himself, truly, I've cleansed my hands in vain for nothing. Doesn't pay to serve God. For all the day long have I been plagued and chastened every morning. Lord, I follow you. I do what you say, and my life's miserable. Then he says this in verses 16 and 17 of this song that he wrote. He says, when I thought to understand this, it was too painful for me. When I tried to figure it out on my own just by looking at what I perceived to be justice and injustice in front of me, he goes, it was almost too much. Couldn't handle it. Until, he says, I was there until I went into the sanctuary of God. What happened in the sanctuary of God? Well, they learned the scriptures. They learned the, the, the songs that they were taught to remind them of God's faithfulness, God's character. And he says, and then I understood there, the wicked, their end. Then I understood where they end up. So it's so important for us to understand that we don't measure fairness and justice by what happens here. We gotta understand the full picture. Now, I think Jesus didn't just remind them of his sword to remind them that justice would be done uh, on, you know, those who were persecuting them, but I, th- I think he also reminded them of his sword because rebels had infiltrated their church. We'll get to that when we cover Jesus' rebuke in verses 14 through 16. So Jesus reminds them of this, and then he commends them. In verse 13, he says, I know your works, and where you dwell, even where Satan's seat is. The phrase Satan's seat means Satan's throne. Jesus says, I see everything you still do. I see how you still walk the Christian life, how you still follow me, you're still faithful to me, even though you're in a precarious situation that you dwell right where Satan's throne is. What? What's that? What, what, what is special about Pergamos that it was Satan's throne? Well, some postulate that Jesus is referring to the fact that Pergamos used to be the capital of the province of Asia before they moved it to Ephesus. Uh, when the king ceded his kingdom, uh, of, kingdom of Pergamos to the Romans, they set up their capital there. Uh, so some people say it's that. Well, that's, you know, where Rome is in charge of this area. That's where their highest influence is. Uh, some people say that, well, Jesus is referring to the massive grove. They had a huge, like, beautiful forest down there and temples interspersed all throughout it at the base of the mountain. Um, the only city that had more temples in that region was the city of Ephesus. So maybe that's why. Uh, some say, well, it's because there was actually a literal throne on top of the city, a big, huge, massive stone throne that was a, uh, or not throne, a big, huge stone statue to Zeus, and you could see it for miles, and maybe that, you know, is what's being referred to. Um, but if, if any of that's true, I, I do question, well, why didn't Jesus call Ephesus Satan's throne too, since Ephesus was, had more of all these things? So while these explanations are possible, I'm not saying they're wrong and I'm right, I do think they overlook something important, something the Bible calls Mystery Babylon. Now, what's Mystery Babylon? We'll get into more of that when we get to the end of the book of Revelation, towards, toward the end. But Mystery Babylon just simply refers to the mystery religious system or the mystery religions of Babylon. Um, 
the mystery religions of Babylon, they came into being in the time of Nimrod, who was the city's first ruler. Uh, Nimrod was considered to be the son of God. He was killed on a hunting expedition, but then raised from the dead, supposedly. And the Babylonian magi, um, the same ones that Daniel was a part of that advised King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, they were his priestly advisors, okay? So this line of priestly advisors, the line of Nimrod, you know, uh, the rulers of Babylon, these things continued all the way until the Medo-Persians defeated Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, Belshazzar. And when they defeated Belshazzar, they expelled the Babylonian magi from the city. And they no longer had a son of God to advise. So where did they go? Some of them went to a place called Etria, but I won't get into that today. I had this big, huge, like, 17-page history lesson for you, and I realized that's probably not going to work. So I'm just condensing this for you. They went to the kingdom of Pergamos. And there they founded a medical university to the Greek god Aesculapius. Aesculapius specialized in healing and in particular raising the dead. He was considered the patron deity of Pergamos, represented on their coins by a serpent entwined by a staff. Now, if that sounds familiar, it's because you probably see it in a lot of hospitals and doctor's offices in our culture today. Same thing. Now, Pergamos' first king, a man named Attalus, he was known as the promised son of God. And so the Babylonian magi declared that he had been raised from the death of Babylon to be the rightful successor of Nimrod. But now they gave themselves a new name, not magi. They called themselves the College of Pontiffs. That will become important in a moment. Now, when Pergamos' last king died, because he had no heir, as I said already, he willed his kingdom to the Roman Empire. And in just a few decades after that, one of these pontiffs became the Roman emperor, a slightly unfamiliar, non-famous guy named Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar is usually most known as the first emperor to declare himself to be the god emperor, you know, and changing the republic and, and how things worked in Rome. He was also part of this group of magi, of pontiffs. Julius Caesar, at that point in time, took both the title of Pontifex Maximus, which means the greatest waymaker, greatest bridge builder, and was understood as he was the great high priest. And from that time forward, all Roman emperors were considered both the promised son of God and greatest high priest. Now, if that sounds like the Antichrist, that's because the same source is behind it. It's exactly what the Antichrist will do, but he, the same plan is there, the mystery of iniquity that 2 Thessalonians 2 talks about, Satan's master plan. Nimrod was just his first attempt. The Caesars were just his attempt at that time period in history. The threat has continued throughout history, but God won't let it happen until his plan says it's time. You know, I re you read this stuff, and, you know, some people, they freak out, you know. I read this stuff, and I just go, Bible makes sense. You know, it's right in front of your face. It's right out there, you know. It's, it's no surprise that, you know, Hitler's regime was called the Third Reich. I always think, I, I always think to myself, you know, why would you call it that? Why would you call it the Third Holy Roman Empire? Why not just call it, you know, the Great German Empire? Oh, no, because there's a thread. <laughs> now, God's not going to let Satan's plan 
be put into place until his plan says it's time to let it be put into place. So Satan doesn't know that. He's not all-knowing. He's not God's opposite. You know, he's not God's adversary. He's our adversary, you know. So he's constantly trying to bring his plan into place. We study that in Daniel and Ezekiel, and, and here we see it again. So at the time that this, Jesus gives this message to Pergamos, the College of Pontus had not yet moved their headquarters to Rome. Pergamos was still their headquarters, and it was the center of emperor, emperor worship in that region. Satan's very throne on earth, the headquarters of his religion. Now, if that history fascinates you and you'd like to learn more, because there is more, you, you can find this information easily. You can just read the accounts of ancient historians. I didn't get this stuff from some Christian who wrote a book, you know, and, and, and you know, was making up stuff or exaggerating. No, you can just go read Herodotus and, and other, you know, ancient historians, and you can find this information out. It's not hiding anywhere, okay? It's in plain sight. So you can do that. I would also suggest reading a book called The Two Babylons by Alexander Hislop. Uh, he is a Christian who, and, and the reason I like his book is because everything is sourced. Everything he quotes, he tells you where he got it from, which historian said it. So uh, it, it's not an easy read. I'm, not going, I'm going to warn you. If you get this book, The Two Babylons by Alexander Hislop, it is a slog, okay? It's not light reading, all right? Um, however, if you're into that, it is well documented, and it's why I recommend it. So the concept, though, what am I, what am I sharing all this with you for? The Christians in Pergamos, they were living in the very heart of darkness. And while the average person could not see that, Jesus did. He knew. And, and he also saw that despite such powerful deception and heavy persecution, these believers remained faithful, and he commends them for that. He tells him, he says, you have held fast my name and have did not denied my faith. The word they held fast means you, you keep on holding on to you. You keep on clinging to my name. You have, and you have not denied, not my faith, but your faith in me. You have not renounced the truth. You have not renounced your relationship with me. You see, the Christians in Pergamos, they believe the title son of God, the, the promised son of God, the, the great high priest, the Waymaker, all those names, they belonged to only one person, and it wasn't Caesar. They believed it belonged to Jesus and him alone. So they clung to his name, and they refused to proclaim Kyrios Kaiser, which is Caesar is Lord. They refused to proclaim that, even though the persecution that we studied about last week that was coming to Smyrna had already claimed one of their own. For Jesus says, you were faithful even in those days where an Antipas was my faithful martyr who was slain among you where Satan dwells. Literally, Jesus says, even in the days when Antipas, my martyr, my faithful one, was slain. I imagine that was a very difficult time for Antipas. And yet he gets to walk around in heaven with the little name badge that says, my faithful one. I think that's worth it. I don't want to be killed for my faith. I'm kind of hoping for the rapture treatment. But I do want a special name from Jesus. And so I want to be faithful through the trials he allows into my life, just like Antipas was faithful through his trial. Don't you want to be faithful in the trials that God allows into your life? Well, Jesus commends them, but, but, verse 14 says, the word there is the strongest word for contrast in the Greek language. In other words, I'm very blessed by your perseverance. But as much as I'm blessed by that, I am equally opposed 
to these things. There were two things that were going on. He said, I have a few things against you. And there are two things that particularly that were going on at this church that Jesus was very much opposed to. He says, number one, because you have there them, in other words, you possess some that belong to your church, that hold to the doctrine of Balaam. Now, the hold there is the same word, to cling to. They keep on holding on to, you've clung to my name. Well, these guys, they're clinging to this false teaching, you know? And what was the false teaching of Balaam? Well, it references who Balaam was. He was the guy who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel. But the actual teaching is this, that it's okay to eat things sacrificed to idols and it's okay to commit fornication. And what's fornication? It's a word we don't use very much in our vernacular. Um, fornication is used in the Bible in, in both a broad way and a very specific way. Um, it, 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 so it's, it's, it can be difficult to understand. Um, kind of the rule of thumb for this word is when it's by itself. In other words, when it's not in a list of other types of sexual sins, then it's, it's just a, a general reference to sexual sin. And that's, that's what that is here. If you find it in a list, like, you know, fornicators, adulterers, you know, and effeminate, it's got all these lists of things, then it takes that more specific usage. Um, I don't want to get into that today, what that is, but because here the general usage. So this is any kind of sexual sin is probably what's in mind here. So, they were basically saying it's okay to eat food offered to idols and the, the boundaries God set for sexuality, they don't apply to us. So why is this attached to this guy Balaam? Why is this his teaching? Well, in Numbers chapter 25, verses one and two, it tells us you know, that uh, what happened in this scenario. I'll give you a little bit of the rundown because there's a lot more to it than just verses one and two of Numbers 25. But in this period of Israel's history, they were still wandering in the desert, but they were almost to the promised land. And God told them, don't attack the Moabites. The Moabites are your kin. They they were descendants from Lot, so I have promised that land to them. Don't take that land from them. Go around, and then, you know, then you can go and take the promised land. So Israel did that. They went around, and they camped in an area called Shittim, which is just north of Moab. And the king of Moab, he was very suspicious. He did not trust the Israelis. And so he had heard the stories of how they had whooped anybody who fought him. And so he didn't want to go out and fight him. And so he hires this soothsayer named Balaam to curse Israel. Figures that'll help me to win. But when Balaam tries to curse Israel, God says, no, you're only allowed to say what I tell you to say. And so Balaam's curses ended up being blessings. Well, Balak was really upset about this. And so he, he basically said, I'm not paying you, you know. And Balaam thought, this is like wasted time. I, I can't, you know, this, is a, this is a huge loss. I want my money. And so he taught Balak how to get God to curse Israel. So how to get God to judge Israel, to, to deal with Israel, since God wouldn't allow him to curse Israel. And so it says in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 25, and Israel abode in Shittim, and the people began to commit whoredom, sexual morality, with the daughters of Moab. And they, the daughters of Moab, called the people, Israel, unto the sacrifices of their gods, and the people, Israel, did eat and bow down to their gods. Now, Numbers 31 16 tells us where this strategy came from because God was very angry at the Moabites because they did this. And so he told Israel, now you can fight them. You know, they have seduced you into sin. Go and wipe them out. And so Israel eventually did that. But Numbers 31, 16 tells who instigated this. Behold, 
These caused the children of Israel, the Moabites and the Midianites, they were involved in this too, through the counsel of Balaam to commit trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor. And so that's why he is listed here, you know. So how does this reference the church of Pergamos? Well, there were a group of people in the church of Pergamos. I don't think they called themselves Balaamites, but they were claiming it was okay to cross God's boundaries as it concerned sexuality and as it concerned idolatry. Two things, idolatry and sexual sin, that were easily accessed in the city of Pergamos. It would be easy to find these things, these vices in the city of Pergamos. Now, Jesus doesn't give this group a name, but a group called the Gnostics taught something similar to this. They were the first Christian cult. And they said their teaching was that all matter was evil and all spirit was good. Now, the Bible doesn't teach that. I'm saying what they taught. But their application of that bad teaching was this. As long as you follow Jesus with your heart and with your mind, you can do whatever you want with your body. Since spirit's good, but all matter's evil. There's no way to save the body, so just live it up. As long as you remain devoted to purity in your heart and mind, you could satisfy the flesh however you wanted to. Now, the Bible teaches a very different view concerning sex and idolatry. 1 Corinthians 7.18 says, flee fornication. That's not complicated. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14 says, flee idolatry. These sins are not merely physical activities. We, we are exhorted, commanded in Scripture to get as far away as possible from any kind of participation in those sins because of how destructive they are and how much they displease the Lord. So it's not okay to engage in these these things physically as long as mentally and spiritually you remain devoted to God. Jesus went to the cross because he loves us and he didn't want us to be far from him. And so he went there to remove the guilt that kept us separated from him. These people in the church at Pergamos were leading believers away from this closeness with Jesus with their false teaching. Now, they were not the only ones doing this. There's another group in verse 15. It says, you also, so you also have them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. In other words, you've allowed these folks to belong to the church too. And these folks are who? They hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, the Ephesians, uh, the Ephesus church, Jesus said to them, you know, I commend you because you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. But deeds are preceded by doctrine, always. And bad doctrine always produces bad behavior. That's why bad doctrine is so bad. It's so devastating and why we can't tolerate it. So the problem is the church of Pergamos, they thought, well, we don't see what they're doing is so bad, so we'll let them share these things in the church. Now, who are the Nicolaitans? Well, we can't know for sure. The the word Nicolaitan means destroyers of the people or conquerors of the people. Um, However, it could also just mean followers of Nicholas. (laughs) And that's how early church leaders took it. They took it as they were followers of Nicholas. They said these people claim to follow the teachings of uh, one of the first seven deacons in the church at Jerusalem. He's named, one named Nicholas is named in Acts chapter 6, verse 5. That Nicholas listed there, though, was a very godly man. 
So the early teachers, uh, early church leaders, they debated uh, whether this Nicholas actually fell away from the faith and became a false teacher or whether it was just others twisted the things that he taught. Uh, for example, they, they said that these heretics, they often quoted Nicholas as saying, you must abuse the flesh to defeat it. And so they, they, they actually taught that, well, you need to indulge your flesh as much as possible because that's the only way you can kill it. You know, so, so eat as much food as possible and then, you know, your body will get so destroyed that, you know, you, then it won't be able to control you. I don't understand that logic. I think that just end, ends up with you dead, you know, but uh, whatever. Sometimes they taught, well, you got to beat your flesh. You know, you got to, you got to, uh, you know, like uh, even still today, there are some churches where the leadership or they'll tell you to flagellate yourself, you know, to, to beat your flesh down and things like that. Um, Either way, those are things that keep us from being close to the Lord because he doesn't want us to do those things. He wants us to deny ourselves, not indulge ourselves. So it was a different approach from the Gnostics, but the same had the same result. And so Jesus says, I hate it. I hate their teaching. And the word their hate means to intensely dislike. Jesus did just go, I don't like it. You know, it doesn't do anything for me. No, no, he says, I hate it. I intensely dislike what they teach. And the reason is, is because Jesus stepped out of heaven, became a man, and went to the cross to rescue us from our sins, not to leave us in them. So he intensely dislikes and is 100% opposed to any teaching that gives us a license to disobey God that would take us further away from him. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, I love it. It says, my little children, these things... I write unto you so that you don't sin. That's the goal, guys. Like the goal is we don't want to sin. We don't want to blow it. We don't want to displease the Lord, right? That's always the goal, always the goal. We never make excuses for sin. We never give permission for sin. It's always the goal to not sin. And it ends with this. But if we sin, if we miss the mark, we have an advocate with the Father, even Jesus Christ the righteous. That's Christianity in a nutshell, you know? Jesus saved us from our sins, so we don't have to do that. Praise God when we still blow it, we have an advocate with the Father. We have, a, we have a def, you know, uh, you know, an attorney, a defending attorney who says paid in full. But the goal is to please the Lord, to honor him, to obey him. So Jesus, he intensely dislikes and is 100% opposed to any teaching that would give us a license to disobey God. Now, what's the solution to allowing false teaching? In a church, verse 16, repent. That's it, repent. Stop, change, turn around. The word repent means a complete change of mind that affects your behavior. And it's in the imperative in the Greek here, which means he's saying you must repent of these things. You have allowed and tolerated these guys, these people to share these things that are not true and it is leading people astray. So change that, confront them, deal with it, Nip it in the bud. Stop the false teaching. And Jesus says, or else, which means, and if you don't, then I will come unto you suddenly, quickly. It means it'll just happen like that. And I will fight against, not you, but them, the false teachers, with the sword of my mouth. That's important that he says them. Otherwise, we miss the entire point of Jesus' warning. Jesus doesn't come and fight against his, his bride, you know? He doesn't, he doesn't beat up his bride, you know? He doesn't, he doesn't do that to his bride. But he does deal with rebels this way. 
The sword that John saw exiting Jesus' mouth, it is for rebels. It's not for true believers. And its purpose is to bring justice and to right wrongs. We read about that in Revelation 19, verse 15, when Jesus returns to deal with the Antichrist and his armies. It says, and out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. That's the purpose of this sword, to bring justice and to right wrongs. And there will come a point in time that when, when the Lord, well, we'll go back here. Okay, so here's the situation with Moab. That's the one that's referenced here. The situation with Moab. They seduce God's people, trick them into sinning against the Lord and to the point where many of them are far from the Lord and in God has to deal with them. That upset the Lord so much that he told Israel, wipe them out. Now, The point is, if things get to a place where it's so bad and there's so much wrong that's being done to his people that the Lord has to step in, it's a severe judgment. The problem, though, is that lots of Israelis were caught up in the fallout because this temptation turned many of their hearts away from the Lord. So the idea here is, Pergamos, much can still be salvaged if you deal with these false teachers now. And if you let it get to a point where I have to step in, many will already have fallen by the wayside. Much will be lost. So don't do that. <laughs> you know, deal with it now, he says. Teaching that props up disobedient behavior can never be tolerated in a church because it will devastate that ministry. Yes, the faithful will be spared. But how many times have you spoken to someone or with someone who refuses to attend church anymore because of an awful past church experience? I think we all know somebody like that, you know? Now, I do need to say this. When your church fails to care for you or fails to keep you safe, that's never a valid excuse to disobey God and just forsake the assembling of the church. I mean, that's never a valid excuse. It's never, it's never right. But that doesn't make it okay what happened to you. It's never okay, and it can't be ignored. It's so important for a church to stick to what the Bible teaches You know, pastors, church staff, volunteers at a church, they're all still sinners. It's already an uphill climb to make this thing work because we're all still sinners. So, you know, I will fail you. The people here who serve here, they will fail you and maybe even hurt you at times. But sound doctrine in a church keeps that to a minimum and it keeps people humble in a place where they confess their sin and they try to make things right when they blow it. And it makes the church a place where sinners can still feel safe, even though there's still sin, <laughs> even though there's still failure. A place, a church is a place where repentance, forgiveness, and healing are the norm. Not excused, not tolerated, where, where sin is not excused or tolerated. And that's what Jesus is pleading with Pergamos to do. And you know, those with these wrong ideas, they might be admired by many in the church, and dealing with them might be difficult for the leaders at Pergamos. But Jesus offers so much more than any of these false teachers can. Look at his promise in verse 17. He says, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto, not just Pergamos, but to the churches. So he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to Coward Chapel Orlando. That's us today. To him that overcomes, and we already studied, the one who overcomes, the victorious one, is someone who's trusted in Christ as their Savior and is following him. To that person, Jesus says this, I will give to eat of the hidden manna, number one. And then number two, I will give him a white stone. And in that stone, there will be, why is it special? Because in it will be a new name written, which no man knows except he that receives it. 
So first off, the hidden manna. I will give him to eat of the hidden manna. What's the hidden manna? Well, I think Jesus is probably making a a play on words here because of the Gnostics. The Gnostics, the word Gnostic actually just means someone who's in the know, someone who has special knowledge. And that's what Gnostics claimed. They claimed they had special knowledge from God that was better than this. I mean, it's not that the scriptures were bad, it's just what I've learned from God that he's revealed to me from my experiences is better than this. It's more valuable than this. And so, you know, if you will listen to me, you can have these experiences too, and then you can get this special knowledge from God. And so that's how they would draw people away. The Bible's not enough. Jesus isn't enough. There's something else out there that you need that's better. Well, Jesus says, I've got something hidden for you, and it's way better. Hidden manna. Well, what's hidden manna? Well, to know that, we got to go back to John chapter 6. And you know the story. Jesus feeds the 5,000. But that night, you know, he sends the disciples over to the other side. They get stuck in the middle. And so Jesus has to walk on water and go save them, right? Well, when they wake up in the morning, the whole crowd's all looking going, man, that buffet dinner was awesome last night, you know? Who's ready for breakfast? And they go to find Jesus, but he's not there. Instead of going and making their own breakfast, these guys hightail it all the way around the other side of the lake. And they get there and like, oh, Jesus, we're so, so glad we found you. You know, that dinner last night was great. Our, our fathers, you know, they got manna from heaven every day. How about breakfast? And Jesus tells him, he goes, yeah, your fathers got that manna every day and they're dead. It was good. But that's not what it was about. It's not about free lunch and free dinner and anything like that. I could do all that, but that's not the point. You need the bread that comes down from heaven, from God. And they thought, that sounds even better than dinner last night. Lord, give us that bread every day. Jesus says, I am the bread that comes down from heaven. I am the bread of life. And if any man takes of me, he'll never thirst again. That's what Jesus is referring to here. That he is way better than anything anyone else is peddling to you. Jesus is better. He's the best that can be. So don't listen when anyone comes to you and says, hey, you know what your church is doing is nice. I mean, the Bible's nice and studying the Bible's great. But the really cool stuff about Jesus is over here. Don't listen to that. Nothing is better than Jesus. And, and why is it hidden manna? Well, Jesus is hidden in a sense right now. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. Hebrews 2.8 says that we don't see all things under his feet yet. And we still live in a world where injustice and wickedness prevails. And we're called in the meantime to do what? Go seek for the hidden Jesus? No, to study what's revealed, to watch and pray and occupy till he comes, right? That's what we're called to do to stay the course. So that's my encouragement to you this morning. Stick with the Bible. Stick with Jesus. Don't get distracted by knowledge that is falsely called knowledge. That's what Paul told young Timothy, you know, and he had to become a pastor unexpectedly. You know, he had to leave him at Ephesus. He thought he'd be back soon. He said, just hold down the fort. And when he realized, I'm not going to get back there anytime soon, here's how to be a good pastor, Timothy. And at the very end of that letter, he said this, oh, Timothy, 1 Timothy 6.20. Oh, Timothy, keep that which has been committed to your trust. What did Paul entrust him with? 
the things Paul learned, the truths of Scripture. Guard that. Keep a close eye on it. And avoid, keep a close eye on that, but avoid this. Avoid profane and vain babblings and contradictions of knowledge, falsely so-called. Well, they call it knowledge. They call it enlightenment. They call it truth. They call it, you know, you know the, the secret information that everybody doesn't know that you need. Stay away from that nonsense. Just stick with this. You'll be fine. Jesus, he will be unveiled, no longer hidden when he returns. And then you'll know him even as you're known. Nothing will be hidden or held back. The second thing he offers them is this white stone. Now, a white stone was, ooh, I'm late. Okay, we've got to wrap this up. A white stone was used for invitations. You would invite someone. Sometimes it was used just to, as a symbol of friendship. Uh, sometimes it was a badge of honor. Oftentimes it was used um, to, for, they would give it to you when you were acquitted in court, and you could always have that as your proof that you've been acquitted. It would have your name on it. We give nicknames to spouses, to children, or even friends And that implies intimacy. Well, Jesus says that on this stone will be written not just your name, but a new name that no one else will know until he returns and he gives it to you. Jesus has a name for each of you that no one in the world will hear until he returns. The unique relationship that you have with him through the cross, what we're about to celebrate with the Lord's Supper in just a few minutes, that cannot be surpassed by any other experience some prophet or some teacher or miracle worker claims to offer you. Your relationship with Christ is the highest of highs. In Christ, you and I have all the specialness we already need. So as we move into this time of remembering him, what he did for us, what he purchased for us, and what we have in him, let's be content with our relationship with Christ and with knowing him better each day through his revealed word. Amen? Amen. Well, the worship team is going to come up and lead us in song. And as we sing, I want to encourage you to reflect on what the Lord did for you. Reflect on this awesome relationship you have with him and recommit yourself, you know, to to letting that be the the highest thing in your life, the, the greatest thing, you know. Lord, we give you this time now to worship you, to sing to you, and to remember you, Lord but also to surrender our lives to you afresh. To say, Lord, you are everything to us. You you do satisfy me. And so, Lord, even though we might have hopes and dreams, you know, the promises that you give to us, those are our highest hopes and dreams. And they are sure hopes and dreams because you can't lie and you don't fail. So, Lord, we give this time of remembrance to you to celebrate what you've done for us, to say thank you again, and to make this fresh commitment to just following you until you return. In Jesus' name, amen.